You can turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be uh, working our way, continuing uh, through the book of Acts. If you're just joining us, uh, we are asking God, show us your power and your purpose that was true in the church then, now, and forever. So Acts chapter 9. I'll be reading through verse 19. I would ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he went on his way. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a, name, a man named Ananias come and in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from, the eye, from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray now, God, that this word would find its place in our hearts and our minds, certainly through our ears, through the proclamation of it, through Matthew. Holy Spirit, would you give us your words through this instrument of yours? Father, I pray uh, now as we remember uh, just in the spirit of this book that we're studying, as we send out a team to Italy, Lord, would you uh, we know you've already gone before them, but God, we pray just for a measure of your grace and power that we would see uh, just evidence that you are at work. God, we do ask, of course, for blessings on their travel and protection, uh, but more than that, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be stirring in them as a team as they work together, uh, be stirring in them for your encouragement and love and joy to the missionaries that we support, and Lord, as they uh, have opportunity to Put forth the light of Christ to the people of Trieste and the children, God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower that 
as that goes forth. And as us, as a church, uh, is back here, Lord, may we remember to lift them up in prayer that week as well. So, Father, now again, be glorified in your church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a day in the middle of the 1800s where Charles Spurgeon arrived to the venue where he was scheduled to preach at later that evening. Back then, they didn't have any microphones or electronic amplification, and so in order to get a sense of the acoustics, to just get a feel for the room, Spurgeon walked into the sanctuary, and he stepped up into the pulpit, and he cried out with a loud voice, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it just so happened that there was one other person in the sanctuary that day. In the very back corner of the sanctuary, up in the roof, there was a day laborer. He was working in the rafters of the roof. And when that worker got home that night, he could not get those words out of his head. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And his conscience was pricked, and he picked up his Bible, and he began to read through the New Testament, and that man eventually became a believer. I had a professor in seminary who did not grow up in a believing home. She grew up in a pretty strong uh, atheistic home. And one day, as a student at the University of Chicago, she was studying the process of photosynthesis. And just as she studied and as she looked, she just was overcome by awe at the nuance, the detail, the beauty, the power, the intricacy, the life-giving nature of the whole process. And that eventually led her to conclude that there's no way this happens by accident. There has to be a designer and a creator who made this. That started her journey, and 30 years later, she's teaching in seminary. A story that plays out countless of times, countless number of times around the world is a devout Muslim will begin to have dreams. They'll start dreaming about a man named Jesus and about stories and healings and encounters that Jesus has, and these dreams will haunt them for months and months and months. And finally, this Muslim will meet a Christian man or a woman, and they will say, are you finally going to be the one who's going to tell me about this Jesus? So I am firmly convinced that the only way to the Father is through the Son, Jesus. And as, as convinced as I am that the only way to the Father is through the Son, I am equally convinced that there are a million different roads to the Son. Stories that begin with acoustics and photosynthesis or recurring haunting dreams, that can eventually lead someone to coming to faith in Christ. A lot of testimonies have very odd beginnings. And that's going to be true for our passage today as we look at Saul. It starts out in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So this story starts out with this eventual convert committing his life to eradicating the name of Jesus off the face of the planet. And verse 1 actually represents an, a progression and intensification of violence in the life of Saul. He's popped up before in Acts. We saw him back at the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, with the stoning of Stephen. 
And in that story, we saw that Paul was standing off to the side. And as Stephen was being stoned, Saul was nodding his approval. Saying, yes, this is good. Kill the Christians. Just like a shark that gets one smell of blood, now that taste and that skill set for committing violence and murder against a church, that has only grown. It has grown to the point where Paul is breathing threats of murder. Murder has penetrated to the very core of his heart. His entire life is committed to killing Christians. Every single breath is murder, murder. Murder. It is, it is his all-consuming passion. He is devoting his life to one thing, persecuting the church. And so as he is traveling hundreds of miles all the way to Damascus to satisfy his bloodlust, all of a sudden, a bright light and a loud voice from heaven came down, and it knocked Saul off his horse. And this voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul. In the Hebrew language, that repetition of a name is meant to be an attention grabber. It's meant to say, I have something important to say to you. You are no longer going to be the same after this. This has huge implications for you, and it is going to have huge implications for us here today. So Jesus said to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul could have very truthfully said, Jesus, what are you talking about? I've never even met you. You were dead before I was here on the scene. I don't know what you look like. I could not pick you out of a lineup. So yes, I'm persecuting Christians. I'm persecuting the people who follow you, but I have never laid a hand on you. But the question remains, why are you persecuting me? In Matthew 25, Jesus was speaking about the the down and out, the downcast, the lowly people of the world. He said, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me truly. I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Meaning that Jesus so closely identifies with his people, with the church, that Jesus takes an attack on the church personally. Jesus takes an attack on the church as an attack on himself. What we need to see here is that Jesus loves the church. Jesus has set his affections on the church. There is a reason that Jesus calls the church his bride. It's because to Jesus, the church is the most beautiful, enrapturing, wonderful thing, and he loves her. Which for us means that we cannot buy into the 21st century Western individualized lie that said that you can separate your love for Jesus from your love for the church. You cannot say, I love Jesus so much. He's so great. He's my boy. I love him so much that every Sunday I'm just going to go off and take a hike in the woods and that that nature therapy is going to be the totality of my relationship with Jesus. It means that you can't just stay at home every single Sunday morning and just light your candles and start your soft worship music, get that ambiance going and say, this is going to be all of my spiritual involvement and discipleship. 
Those things are fine, but they're meant to be more like a vitamin, a supplement. The main primary way that we grow in our relationship with Jesus is by being involved in the church. So I, I realize that I'm preaching to the choir here. I mean, obviously you're here on a Sunday morning. And so obviously everyone here to some level sees the value and the benefit and the goodness of gathering together as the people of God to worship God. So, so I don't say this as a condemnation. I just say it as an exhortation, as a strengthening, as a reminder that Jesus loves the church. And if you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, then invest heavily in his bride. That's just what we symbolized and, and carried out here as people became members of Redemption Parker. They said, I am so in love with Jesus that I am covenanting, covenanting together with my fellow brothers and sisters to follow Jesus together. One great Christian writer and thinker, Jared Wilson, put it this way. He said, I've been hurt by church people more than by anybody else. And yet, solo discipleship is not a biblical option. I'll give up on the local church when Jesus does, and not a second sooner. Which, just to be very clear, Jesus will never give up on his bride. He has died for her, he has pursued her, he has purchased her, and he loves her. It is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. I think there's a reason that Paul, who is going through this radical transformation that we're reading about today, do you know what his favorite metaphor for the church is? It says the church is like a body. It has different parts, but it is all meant to go together. And Christ is the head of that body, and the church is the body of Christ. They are meant to go together. If you separate a head from its body, you die. They are meant to go together. You follow Jesus best in the context of a local church. St. Cyprian, a church father in Africa in the early uh, centuries of the church, he put it this way. He said, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. So at the very beginning of Saul's conversion, in addition to calling Saul to himself, Jesus is also calling Saul to the church. And there are so many things that we could talk about regarding Saul or, or Paul's conversion. Which, just as an aside, um, it's a favorite kind of preaching motif or line from preachers to say that this is the moment when the persecutor Saul became the apostle Paul. They think that this is where Saul became Paul. He had that foundational identity shift. And I, I do firmly believe that when you come to Christ, he changes your identity. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. But Saul's name didn't get changed here. In this passage, after his conversion, they are still going to refer to him as Saul. Through the rest of Acts, he is going to be referred to as Saul. So he just chose Saul or Paul based on where he was doing ministry at the time. If he was in a more Jewish context, he would go by his Jewish name, Saul. If he was in a more Greek context, he would go by his Greek name, Paul. So I, I hate to be the, the bubble burster, but it's just not accurate to say that Saul became Paul. It preaches great, but it's just not really true. So anyways, there is so much that we could talk about regarding Saul or Paul's conversion. We could talk about how it involved three days of darkness and fasting. We could talk about how it involved miraculous signs like a light and a voice coming down from heaven. 
We could, talk about, we could talk about how God used another person, Ananias, to complete his sovereign work. We could talk about how the culmination of this conversion involved in the laying on of hands and the filling of the Spirit and of baptism. We could spend weeks and months just digging through all of the gold in here. It has just been, it's been fun for me this week. It's just been like a playground. I've had a great time just, just meditating on this passage. So I, I wish we could take eight weeks to work through it, but because of time restraints, we have to kind of just get the highlights. And the pinnacle of this passage is verse 15. Saul's conversion and verse 15 really is the birthplace for the rest of the New Testament. All of Paul's later writings are just him looking back on this moment and trying to work through, trying to verbalize, trying to make sense of the experience that he had here. And so this is God in verse 15 speaking to Ananias, trying to give Ananias a little comfort, saying when you go to Paul, he's not going to kill you like he killed all of his friends. And God said this about Paul. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. And so what we see here are two pillars, two transformational, foundational truths that is going to be the outline and the bedrock of all of Paul's theology for the rest of his life. They're going to serve as an outline for the rest of our time. And the two pillars that God lays down here is a theology of the sovereign and electing grace of God. And number two, a theology of missions and evangelism. So number one, what we see here is the sovereign electing grace of God. How does God speak about Paul in terms of Paul coming to faith? He says he is a chosen instrument. I have chosen him. I have elected him. There was nothing good in Paul. There was nothing in Paul that was attractive to God that made God say, he's awesome, I really need him on my team. Just the opposite is true. He was literally breathing murder against the church. He was trying to wipe the name of Jesus off the face of the planet. There was nothing in Paul that deserved this kind of grace. The only reason that Paul had this experience was because of the sovereign, electing, merciful grace of God. And like we talked about at the beginning, this process for coming to faith that oftentimes looks different for different people. You know, what, what, what would happen if we compared Paul's conversion with the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion from last week? So last week, the Ethiopian eunuch traveled all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, and he did it by chariot. That is a very long journey. And then he went back home and he was taking the chariot ride and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah is a very long book. And the eunuch was asking questions about Isaiah 53. He had been reading for hours and hours and hours and asking questions. And then he had this great conversation with Philip where Philip was able to explain the scriptures and point Jesus to, or and point uh, the eunuch to Jesus. And, and so what we saw last week is that God was wooing and attracting and, and working the soil of the eunuch's heart. It was almost like a romantic pursuit. But this week, it could not be any more different. 
This conversion was sudden. It was unexpected. It was not romantic. It was like a militaristic conquest. This was a violent conversion. I was talking to my mom yesterday. My mom is an, op- an optometrist, an eye doctor. And I told her I was preaching this passage, and she said, oh, have you ever heard of the conversion reaction? I hadn't, so I asked her what it was. And It's a medical term, and it is when a person goes through such severe trauma. You know, it can be some sort of child abuse or the death of a loved one or, you know, any kind of, you know, exposure to battle or war trauma. And what happens is the body, psychologically, it can't deal with the trauma that it is experiencing. And so it manifests itself physically. And a lot of times, the way that it does that is the person who has experienced the trauma will go blind. So my mom has checked these people's eyes, and their eyes work fine. They are functioning. They can physically see, but because of the break that has happened in their psyche, they're blind. I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but it is very clear that this was a traumatic moment for Paul. This was a violent conversion. Jesus was conquering Paul's heart. Notice the commands that Jesus gave Paul in verse 6. Jesus told Paul, rise, enter the city. You will be told, you will be told what you are to do. Jesus is not asking for Paul to put his faith in Jesus. Jesus is telling Paul, I have bought you with a price and you are mine. And, and understandably and rightly, whenever we talk about the doctrine of election, the, the first question that always comes up is, well, what about free will? If, if God is sovereign over salvation, if he does the work from beginning to end, then does that just make God a puppeteer and, and he's pulling all of us by strings? Does that make us robots? I actually think about this pretty often, sometimes several times a week, and I think about it very early in the morning when my alarm first goes off. Because when my alarm goes off, I have two choices to make. I can either obey my alarm and get up early and go for a run. I can get my, get my day started out on the right foot. I can be healthy. Or I can say no to my alarm, and I can choose to stay in bed where it's warm and get more sleep. So every morning, both of those options are available to me. I am free to do both. Thing is, I always do what I most want to do. We always do what we most want to do. And so when I wake up, while both of those options are available to me, more often than not, I choose to ignore my alarm and go back to sleep because that is what I want what I desire. In a very similar way, when it comes to choosing God or choosing sin, both of those options are available to us. We have the freedom to make both of those choices. Thing is, with a sinful heart, you will never choose God. With a sinful heart and broken desires and a broken will, you are going to choose sin Every single time. Paul would eventually write this in Romans 8. He says, Those who live according to the flesh 
set their minds on the things of the flesh. To set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So while we are free to choose God, our sinful hearts make it so that we never will. The only way for us to choose God is for God to change our hearts and our wills and our desires. And when God elects you, he changes your heart so that you can choose to put your faith in him. This is what the great promises of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 are talking about when God says, I will give you a new heart. I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you so that you can obey my statutes. So to return to the question, does God being sovereign negate free will? God being sovereign in election means that God changes your will. And that is a good thing. Because on your own, you were heading for destruction. On your own, you were heading to spiritual death. So in election, God is overcoming your will by his love. And once he has changed your heart, once he has changed your will, you are still free, except now you can choose him. Notice that the rest of the New Testament is not Paul griping about God giving him a new heart. Nowhere does Paul say, I was doing just fine on my own. I was doing great. And then, yeah, God gave me a new heart, but I have never forgiven him for that. The only response that Paul ever has to the grace that he experienced in this moment was to rejoice and to exalt God for the grace that God showed him. In Philippians 3, Paul is giving his spiritual resume. He's talking about who he was spiritually before this encounter. Listen to what he says. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, for crying out loud. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, no one has kept the law better than me. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I was the church's public enemy number one. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul gives his spiritual resume, and then how does he look back on his time before this moment? He says, I count it all as loss. I count it all as rubbish. That word for rubbish literally means dung or human excrement. So I could be exegetically responsible and use a word that would probably get me fired if I set it up here. That is what Paul thinks of who he was before this moment. All of my accomplishments, all of my good works, everything about who I, who I was, it is all loss. It is all crap. The only thing that I have to boast in is that Christ came to me and he changed my heart. He has set his grace on me. In Ephesians 2, at the beginning in verse 1, Paul will write, I was dead in my sins and trespasses. What, what did my heart look like before this moment? It looked like a rotting corpse. And 
What do dead people do? Absolutely nothing. Dead people don't do good deeds. They don't put their faith in anything. Dead people don't cry out for God. Dead people are dead. And the only hope that a dead person has is for a righteousness from outside of them to come in and to give them life. That's why after saying that he was dead in Ephesians 2, Paul can move on to say, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace by God's sovereign, beautiful, powerful, electing grace that you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Or go to Romans 11. And in Romans 11, Paul is looking back on everything that he has written in Romans where he has outlined the redemptive work of Christ. He has talked about how Christ calls sinners to himself. And as he looks back on all of Christ's work, Paul cries out, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So I go through all of those examples from Paul's later writings just to show that Paul never held a grudge against God for the grace that God showed him. The only response that Paul had to God giving him a new heart was to bow down and worship. And worship is the only appropriate response to this kind of grace. Truly, one of the most repulsive things that I have ever seen is some snot-nosed college kid who has just read their first John Piper book and all of a sudden, they become the most insufferable know-it-all on the face of the planet. I don't know how, but each one of them is worse than the next. And so if your response to encountering this kind of grace from the Lord is to have some sort of intellectual arrogance, where you think you're the one that has discovered the secret that nobody has found out in the history of humankind, or if your entire goal is to get people to read Calvin's Institutes or to embrace the Reformation, then you have missed the point of the grace of God completely. Biblically, the only response to this kind of sovereign, transforming, electing grace of God is to bow down and worship. It is meant to give you a higher sense of who God is and what he has done in saving you. And it is meant to lower your own sense of self-entitlement because you did nothing to deserve it. Humility and worship are the true marks of someone who has been captured by the grace of God. And, and when your view of God is that big... When God is that incomparable, when he is that kind, when he is that loving, when he is that powerful, that is not the kind of news that you can keep to yourself. You naturally have to share that with somebody. Meaning that holding to the doctrines of grace or the doctrines of election naturally leads you towards missions and evangelism. Notice what did God say about Paul in the rest of verse 15. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So again, 
naturally and rightly and understandably whenever we talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation, the next question that comes up is, what about evangelism? If God is the one who is sovereign, if God does the saving, and if it is, if it is his work from beginning to end, then am I still called to go? Do, do I play any part in God's mission? And, and that, is, that is a great question. Anytime that someone asks, what about the Great Commission? I, I want to hold up and respect that instinct. In, in fact, if you ever come across any kind of doctrine that keeps somebody from going to the mission field, then, then get rid of that doctrine. It's bad. But what I hope we will see is that election does not hinder our evangelism or render it unnecessary. I hope we will see that election actually enhances and encourages evangelism. Okay, just notice the immediacy with, with, with which evangelism follows election in verse 15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, election. Why? To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. They go together. One naturally leads to the other. Not a single person in human history has held more to the doctrines of grace than Paul. And there is also not a single person in all of human history who has been a more fervent evangelist than Paul. There is a reason he is called the missionary to the Gentiles. He led the way. He set the precedent. And Paul continued this theme in his later life and writings. Again, if you read through Romans, eventually you're going to get to Romans 9, which that is the chapter on election. That's the big one. It is literally titled God's Sovereign Choice. And in that chapter, God will say things like, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion God even goes so far as to say it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And those, we should wrestle with those things. Those should keep us up at night sometimes. But do you know what Paul wrote right after Romans 9? Romans 10. And in Romans 10, Paul is going to give the clearest call to missions and to going and to carrying the name of Jesus more than anywhere else in all of his writings. In Romans 10, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul did not see a disconnect between the two. We're actually going to get to see a really cool moment in a few weeks in Acts 18. You know, he, he kind of gave his textbook explanation for election and evangelism in Romans, but in Acts 18, we get to see it played out in real life. And there, Paul is preaching in Corinth, and the people won't have it. They revile Paul. They oppose Paul. They run him out of town. And so Paul is fleeing for his life. And one night in a vision, God says to Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I have many in this city who are my people. Okay, did you catch that? 
God said, I have people there. They are my people. I have chosen them. They are mine. Therefore, go and preach to them. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep evangelizing. That should blow our minds that God is so sovereign that he has already done the work, and yet somehow he still uses us, and we get to play a part in God's mission. Now, if you want me to give a full-blown crystal clear, no more questions necessary. We can put the matter to rest for all of eternity explanation of how these two things go together. I have to confess that I cannot do it. I can point you in the direction of somebody smarter than me, and this is a book by J.I. Packer, and it's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's pretty short, just over 100 pages, and basically the book is just kind of wrestling with what we've been talking about. How, how did these things go together? I would highly recommend that you read it, but I, I am going to spoil it for you. Basically, what Packer shows from Scripture is that the doctrine of election and the doctrine of evangelism are unending and unyielding themes taught throughout Scripture. They run eternally parallel to one another. One does not overtake the other, and one does not render the other unnecessary. They are both clearly taught, and we should rejoice in them. Somebody actually once asked Spurgeon this question. They asked, how do you reconcile election and evangelism? He said, reconcile? I wouldn't dare. I never try and reconcile friends. And that's the kind of attitude that we need to have when it comes to talking about these things. We need to admit that the mountain of eternal truth goes higher than our eyes or our minds can climb. And so we want to follow them as faithfully and as high as we can, but when the mountain of eternal truth goes beyond what our limited human uh, capabilities can understand, then we just need to step back and to bow down and to confess that even still, God is God. So to close, I have two points of application. One is for the believers in the room. One is for the unbeliever in the room. So to the believer, what what does this passage have for you? Never give up on seeing someone come to faith. Never give up praying for them, sharing the gospel with them. Never give up hope that they can come to know the Lord. Maybe it's one of your kids and you have invested your entire life into raising them up and training them in the way that they should go, but they, they run the other way. Or it's a brother or sister of yours who is just strung out on God knows what. Or it's an atheistic professor who just scoffs at the claims of this book and what you believe. Or maybe it's just a friend who they're not against the gospel, they're just apathetic. They just don't care. That that is an equally hard wall to break through. And what this passage shows us is that God can save anyone. Paul was the church's public enemy number one. Every single breath, every single step, every single action that he took was trying to murder Christians. He wasn't reading scripture for himself. He wasn't reading The Reasons for God by Timothy Keller. He wasn't going to apologetic conferences. He wasn't seeking God. He hated him. 
And yet one day, God set his overpowering, awe-inspiring, sin-killing, heart-changing, all-transforming, sovereign, electing grace on Paul. And Paul's heart melted in a moment. In Isaiah 59, we read that surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. If I were going to put that in a modern context, a millennial context, version of the Bible, I would just say that God does not have T-Rex arms. God isn't, oh, I wish I could get to them. I wish I could save them. No. God is sovereign, and he is eternal, and he can save anybody. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. And then to the unbeliever. On the surface, hearing about election might sound like a discouraging thing. Might sound like, oh, well, sounds like God has his people, and I'm not one of them right now. I guess I can't become one of them. Sounds like God has made his choice, and here I am. To that person, let me ask you just one question. Is there any part of your heart that wants to be one of God's elect? Is there any part of you that views God as good and lovely? Because remember, you always do what you most want to do. So if your heart is dead, it hates the things of the Lord. It rejects God completely. But if there's even a part of you that says, God's beautiful, He's powerful. He's lovely. I want that. I think that is a sign of life. That is a sign that God is working in your heart. He is giving you new heart and new desires and a new will so that you can love him. There's a great picture at the end of the Bible in Revelation 7, and we are told about the throne room of God where the saints, the redeemed from all the ages, are praising God for what he has done. Revelation 7 says, A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you hear how many people are going to be there? A great multitude that no one can number. So just because we hold to the doctrine of election does not mean that we hold to the election of a few. We do not believe that God is only going to call a small number to himself. It is going to be a multitude that no one can number from every nation, every tribe, every language, and every tongue, meaning there is still room for you. God can save you. He delights in nothing more than seeing someone turn from their old ways and calling upon him. So look to Jesus. See his beauty. See his power. See his undeserved, unreserved, indescribable grace that he can show to you. And if you want it, Just call out to him, and it's yours. So towards that end, let me pray for us.
Lord, we are humbled in this moment, humbled by the truth of who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus. Pray that by your spirit you would work in the hearts of unbelievers in this room. Lord, would you give them a new heart? Would you open their eyes? Would you drop the scales from their eyes so that they can see Jesus? And for everybody, would you give us a bigger view of Jesus? Would you lower our own sense of self? And would you make Jesus big in our lives? We pray these things in his name. Amen.